Welcome to Wavelengths, a podcast with Amphenol Broadband Solutions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Wavelengths, an Amphenol Broadband Solutions podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. It's good to be back in front of the camera and behind the mic with our Amphenol podcast fam. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode. As we continue to explore the top trends, technologies, and the market-moving forces that are shaping the larger telecom and broadband industries. As we jump into today's episode, you know the drill. Make sure you're heading to our website, amphenolbroadband.com. Again, amphenolbroadband.com for more on our solutions and services and other content as well, including episodes of the podcast, blogs, white papers, videos, research you name it. You can also subscribe to Wavelengths on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations as well as notifications when we drop new episodes. So let's jump right in. We have quite a bit to unpack. This is going to be a technology-focused deep dive uh, of an episode. And we're going to be looking into the evolving ecosystem of the wireless revolution. And we're going to be laying out some of the major updates and examples of use case innovation in the core technologies that are defining this sort of next gen of wireless connectivity, including Wi-Fi 6, 5G, and 6G. And then we're going to also look at some of the applications of those technologies in the context of IoT and Industry 4.0 networks. And we're going to get an analysis more specifically on how this technology revolution is reshaping the broadband industry in general, and specifically, uh, you know, around different partnerships, uh, services, and solutions provided, and also strategies for expanding their wireless broadband networks. So for a little more context, the way that we access the internet is changing constantly and at an, uh, an increasingly rapid pace, right? And at the forefront of that evolution uh, is you know, an evolution to the foundational technologies of next-gen wireless connectivity. Again, Wi-Fi 6, 5G, 6G networks, and then the devices that take advantage of these powerful networks. But as Industry 4.0's use cases become more standard instead of bleeding edge, uh, as the Internet of Things further converges OT and IT, and as the kinds of devices connecting to these evolving networks grows in scope and in industry touch points, it becomes more important to not only choose the right technology for the right environment, uh, but that also uh, starts to shape how the broadband industry um, interacts with and is affected by those end user decisions and use cases around which wireless network is going to be right for our current and future wireless connectivity industry 4.0 needs, right? So let's jump into it. Here to explore the world of wireless and how it's reshaping the broadband industry is Alan Proithis, CEO of GXC. Alan, great to have you on. How you doing, man? Wonderful. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me here to talk about uh, the entire history of the wireless industry in a few minutes. Yeah. Okay. We've got 30 seconds. Go, go. <laughs> but no, I, I appreciate you joining us, Alan. Um, it's a pleasure getting to chat. And just for a little more context for our audience, uh, Alan here previously has had roles as an advisor, board of directors member, and CEO at other companies in the IoT and mobile technologies ecosystem. 
But again, he's currently CEO at GXC, and GXC is a cellular mesh solutions company that provides high-performance and versatile private cellular networks for enterprise wireless connectivity. They operate in heavy industry, like industrial manufacturing and, uh, and extractive industries, excuse me, uh, but as well as uh, supply chain industries, like warehousing, logistics, airports, and marine terminals. So, Alan, you have quite a storied background in the larger uh, telecom and, and IoT and sort of evolving mobile technologies ecosystem and industries. So, you know, if anyone's going to know how these technologies have evolved um, over the course of the last several, you know, decades, but also just more recently, it's going to be you. So I'm glad to have you on. Let's jump right into it. The core technologies and ecosystems we're going to break down again are Wi-Fi 6, 5G, 6G, and then some other applications in IoT contexts. At a high level, how are these next-gen wireless networks today, their current iterations, how are they comparing to traditional wired broadband connections and more uh, specifically some of the newer iterations of fiber optic, right? Are they basically, you know, just playing synergistic but very separate roles or are we starting to see um, the standardization of wireless broadband networks start to take over and just fundamentally replace the traditional infrastructure of wired ecosystem? Wow, that's a big question here, Dan. Uh, so let me let me start off by saying, how many pairs of shoes do you have in your closet at home? Uh, my, my, you're my you're talking to a big shoe guy here, so probably too many. But <laughs> the, the point is, you have a pair of shoes you're wearing now versus the ones you go for a drive with, go to the beach, go to dinner with, uh, work in the garden with. And you know, technology is sort of the same thing in that uh, uh, the biggest danger sign to me is when uh, someone promotes a particular technology, saying that it will cure every one of your problems. And I think the answer to your question about all these different things that um, continue to evolve and, and expand and, and, and impact our lives is that it's the right tool for the right job. And they, they pretty much all have a place and they were all designed for really different things to start. Um, and the trick is really applying the right technology to the right job at the right time. And if, if, if you want to talk about from a business theory standpoint, like a standard Clayton Christensen, Harvard Business School, jobs to be done perspective. Um, what's the job you're trying to do? It's, it, it sounds simple, but um, the industry, especially one where you need a lot of really smart engineers to make stuff work, sometimes you get into these almost like uh, religious level arguments about um, the minutiae of technology that frankly 99% of people in the world really don't care about. Um, it's really about how it provides business value um, how does it hit a price point? Um, how do you maintain it? And how does it future-proof you to some extent um, in terms of where your business is going in the future? You know, I think that's probably the best perspective to apply to our conversation today uh, as we explore these evolutions to foundational next-gen wireless technologies. Um, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of crossover in terms of you know, Wi-Fi 6 is going to benefit from 5G and 6G doing their jobs right, right? Neither ecosystem is trying to sort of take over and replace one or the other because, like you said, each one has a place. Each one helps serve uh, our Industry 4.0 reality differently and at a different scale. Uh, so I think with that, 
let's start getting into some of the specific buckets of technologies here and how they are evolving. So really what we're going to do is we're going to explore the latest developments in each. Uh, and then we're going to touch on some developments that I did some research on and that I've seen that I think are important for understanding the evolution of the industry and get your take on, uh, you know, if you agree that this is one of the you know core areas that is defining the future of the industry, your thoughts on some recent news, all that good stuff. So let's uh, let's start with Wi-Fi 6. So Wi-Fi 6 in general uh, has brought better security, faster speed, energy efficiency and lower latency compared to its previous iterations. There's now more devices with uh, with six and six e certification on the market. Um, you know it's pretty standard at this point, and it's so standard that we're already talking about Wi-Fi seven, right? So, what are some of the latest updates to Wi-Fi six and six e technology itself that you find most important in shaping some of their use cases and the proliferation of this gen of Wi-Fi as the new standard? It's hard to really imagine a world without Wi-Fi at this point, isn't it? Um, but but, you know, if we think back to when Wi-Fi was first adopted in least most technologies, whether it's Wi-Fi or mobile phones or a fax machine or, you know, whatever technology you can name, it really starts in enterprise. And then as volumes go up, it trickles into consumer. And, you know, Wi-Fi 6 is a great evolution, uh, as is Wi-Fi 6E, of the Wi-Fi we all know and love. And um, just like we went from Wi-Fi just in one particular spectrum at 2.4 gigahertz and then expanded to 5 gigahertz. And, you know, but Wi-Fi was never really designed um, for mobility. Wi-Fi wasn't really conceived, um, uh, you know, it's a best effort type of technology in that. You ever try to hook up a Wi-Fi network in New York City? Um, you have those firms that all they do is charge you a huge bucket of money to get your Wi-Fi to network to work when there's a, literally a hundred other networks trying to hit the same spectrum at the same time. Because for instance, Wi-Fi is awesome and there's a lot of things it does well, but we've evolved it really far now and really stretching the limits of it. So in the latest Wi-Fi 6, there's more channels available. Um, you have more MIMO type capabilities. Uh, you know, you have increased the latency and security a bit, but you're still, everybody's sort of fighting for the spectrum that's allocated for Wi-Fi and there's not a concept and again, I'm the guy, I'm the business guy, okay? I'm the guy that figured out how to make money with all this stuff and how to apply it to business problems. But generally speaking, um, Wi-Fi, everybody's sort of banging on the same spectrum at the same time. It doesn't have a concept of one connection is scheduled around another connection. And so that's why you have so many interference problems with Wi-Fi. They definitely are getting better with every version, but still the fundamental nature of Wi-Fi haven't changed. Uh, what Wi-Fi 6E is then trying to do is opening up additional spectrum um, higher up in the stack in the six gigahertz to just provide more highway for cars to go on is the analogy you can think of it, um, which is great. Um, but there's this little thing called physics. So the good news is you have more spectrum that you can do more stuff on with Wi-Fi. And that's a, that's a good thing. Um, the bad news is, is that um, that spectrum is higher up in the spectrum band. And um, the basic physics triangle is the higher you go up in spectrum, the more data it can carry. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, the more data it can carry, but the less distance it goes. And so you actually need to deploy um, quite a few more um, access points for the more you get into Wi-Fi 6E than you would for even um, current Wi-Fi running on 2.4 or 5. So again, it, it's not to say it's a bad thing. It's for what it's made for. It's excellent. So office. Situation, you know, your house, 
Um, anything with carpet is the way I try to think about Wi-Fi. It's really good at. The second you take Wi-Fi outside, though, it sticks. It's just the limitation of the protocol uh, behind the technology. So um, the good news is for those situations where it shines, where it was really designed to work in, again, offices, home, uh, to some extent, the mall, depending on how it's deployed, um, restaurants, works really well. Keep using it, keep, keep adding on. Uh, but when you try to do other things, um, it tends to bog down. So how is that reality of its, you know, uh, focused application, uh, I guess, coming more into focus, right? Like knowing where it plays its role and it playing its role best. How is that context shaping how wireless broadband providers maneuver the ecosystem and decide where we're not to provide services, uh, you know, how to choose product partners, et cetera, right? So the answer is pretty different for enterprise and consumer, um, and, and it depends which, tried, which side of the equation you're trying to skin. And the way to think about it, too, and it's the reason the private cellular networks are starting to take off so quickly. You know, we all, of course, love public networks, um, but also their public networks are optimized. Think of uh, a quick quiz. What percentage of people listening to this have TikTok on their phone, right? Um, I don't for security concerns uh, for some government stuff I used to do. But the point being that um, public networks are optimized for basically download, for people sucking data down to watch videos, get emails, um, and there's a little bit of uplink on it. Um, Cellular networks are good also when you're on the receiving side of video or data like that, because it's really hard to tune a Wi-Fi network um, for particular use cases. Where private cellular really shines is because we can take our network and say, oh, you want half it allocated to upload because you're in a factory, you're in a warehouse, you're on a farm, and you're actually generating a lot of data you're trying to keep off a public network. So you can perform some kind of process on it before you decide to send it to a cloud. And in that level of tunability is something that's missing both in public networks and it's missing in Wi-Fi. So when you talk about the use cases, um, when it comes to enterprise, again, Wi-Fi is great for connecting your laptops, your printer, um, for video stuff, for video calls within the company. They're great for that kind of thing. Uh, but when you talk about connecting up lots of stuff that will be going up versus down. Um, that's where you really need your own cellular network. I also want to touch on, uh, and I'll do this for some of the other technologies too, but the evolving ecosystem of tech that is supporting Wi-Fi 6 connections uh, on either side, either you know on the uh, device side or on just facilitating the connection in the first place. For example, TI recently announced that it's going to launch um, a new pair of Wi-Fi 6 companion integrated circuits that are specifically for IoT system designs. So that's one example. We also saw Cisco um, announce Wi-Fi 6 access points for small enterprises. So I don't necessarily, you know, we don't need to get into each of their specific company uh, strategies or decisions, but it's just to paint a larger picture of we're seeing more big players um, in, you know, sort of the, the periphery of telco and broadband um, deliver solutions that are trying to, I guess, amplify the possibilities around what Wi-Fi 6 can do, what networks uh, it, it supports. Um, and it seems to be, you know, heading in the direction of 
trying to better support the OTIT convergence uh, that's defining the expansion of IoT. So what are your thoughts there? I mean, is that is that sort of the right way to be thinking about Wi-Fi 6's development based on what you were saying earlier, that it kind of has, you know, it has a great purpose, but it's a more niche and focused purpose. Should we be trying to think of all the different ways that Wi-Fi 6 can grow its scope or should Wi-Fi 6 be trying to hone in on refining its already existing scope? And yeah, what are your thoughts? There? All the players that typically participate in the Wi-Fi ecosystem today will, are jumping on the Wi-Fi 6 and 6E bandwagon. So whether it's the Cisco's, the TI's, the Broadcom's, all those people for enterprise uh, and for consumer use are all going to continue to adopt the latest technologies because of the advantages um, that they provide. But the question is, do they open up new and additional use cases? Um, you know, not as much. Like when you talk about IoT, Wi-Fi has never really been a particularly strong IoT connectivity technology because it's very battery inefficient. Um, I remember years ago talking to someone, because again, I, I once built an IoT network covering 70 million people in the US. So I've done use cases in almost every- You've got industry. some practice and experience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've had sufficient scars from all that. And, uh, and again, I, the only thing I care about is solving a customer problem and creating a business model. So uh, there are, if it's a powered application, Wi-Fi becomes uh, more applicable, but so many things in IoT are actually battery driven. And once you get on the battery-driven side, Wi-Fi tends to be a really, really bad solution. And if you don't believe me, how often do you charge your smartphone in your pocket? Uh, you know, and your Wi-Fi is always on to take advantage of that when you're on one of those networks. So it's not to say Wi-Fi is bad because it's not. It's actually good, but it it has certain inherent uh, characteristics that just make it good for some things, the things that Wi-Fi already does, and less good for those things that um, don't go. Like I remember this one application, believe it or not, it was a... Uh, a Wi-Fi connected mousetrap, and uh, and believe it or not, still try to build better mousetraps. This is one of those CES conversations that you seem to have after three drinks. And uh, the guy was telling me how he was going to change role with Wi-Fi mousetraps, and I said, "Really?" I said, "Well, it's great that it notifies you if it snaps." I said, "But how often do you have to charge it?" He's like, "Well, we got it up from three days to like five now," and I'm thinking. Can you imagine collecting up mousetraps and charging them every five days, seven days? I mean, really? Yeah, it doesn't uh, sound very realistic. I, I mean, the last mousetrap I said, I probably didn't look at for months. So let's be honest. Exactly. Now you want to know if something happens, but my point is you're not going to know when the battery's dead. So that's that's the inherent limitation. So I'd say the things that Wi-Fi does really well today, um, like you know the connection we're talking on right now, um, it's really, really good at that. Um, but in terms of a lot of uh, battery operated devices, the other thing that Wi-Fi um, is much better at is indoor. So indoor, again, with carpeted, um, very defined spaces, Wi-Fi tends to do really well in. The second you go to big open spaces, um, for instance, if you, if you look at cellular versus any kind of cellular access point, um, the industry statistics based on and very rigorous testing is, for every one cellular access point, you actually need 10 with Wi-Fi outside. That number, by the way, I've not seen the numbers for 6E yet because it's, we're operating in a higher spectrum band. And I guarantee you that number is going to be worse. Um, and again, not to geek out, but just to give you another reference point, there was an interesting report I read about a year ago, um, Verizon did, on just the difference between deploying in two point, like 5G from 2.5 gigahertz to 3.5 gigahertz spectrum. And because Spectrum is a, um, 
uh, logarithmic um, uh, change as you go up, um, you need 16 times the antenna just to jump from 2.5 to 3.5 bands for deployments. And now we're talking about you going to six gigahertz in Wi-Fi. So that's why I'm saying um, like those kits you buy, like you go to Costco or whatever, and you have like a pack of like your mesh Wi-Fi stuff. And they usually have like three in there. Most of those now are going to have four or five with 60 just to cover the same space. So it's great. You get a great experience out of it for what it is. But if you take it outside that very defined environment, and try to go outside with it or like a big industrial space, it just doesn't work. So then last note here on, on Wi-Fi 6 and 6E, with all that context in mind, what advice or strategies would you offer to uh, players in the you know, wireless broadband services ecosystem for you know, developing what types of services they even provide around Wi-Fi 6 and 6E or sort of how they frame those around this constantly evolving ecosystem that is trying to, you know, really validate Wi-Fi 6 as a, a foundational IoT technology um, in, in both personal and professional settings. What are your thoughts there? I'd say what I'd really love to see with this stuff, because everyone talks about what you could do, but actually doing it's a whole different story. I would love it if it, it's sort of like um, the unfortunate period 15 years ago when you bought a new PC and it had like 20 junk applications on, uh, which had a very pejorative name, I won't repeat, uh, um, of stuff you tried to like, you know, uninstall as soon as you got your new laptop or, or desktop. Um, but the one good thing about it, there was always a couple of things on that you actually could use that, that showed you value very quickly out of your new purchase. And I, I think the biggest gap in some of these new technologies is we make it too hard to get immediate value out of it. So if you were to say, look, I'm going to package up these two or three um, illustrative applications that as soon as you buy that new uh, Wi-Fi 6 or Wi-Fi, especially Wi-Fi 6E uh, thing, that, hey, I can do this thing I couldn't do before. You know, what's really a cool little application you could simply bake on that box that people could play with? I mean, how many years now has your phone said you had 5G? which I would call marketing 5G versus reality 5G for most of these public networks. And what's the one single thing you've been able to do with the now that you couldn't do before? You couldn't name one. And, and I think that's the trick is showing an example that right away, hey, I can do this thing I couldn't do before. It's really cool. And everybody should buy more of this. I love it. The industry should, you know, evangelize its wins and its, uh, its evolutions a little more clearly. I like yeah. that. If, if you're going to sell somebody a, a new microwave, how about giving them that first meal? Yeah, I like that. I like that. Now you're getting me hungry. Um, all right. So I don't keep getting hungry. Let's jump over to 5G. Um, so, okay, we've laid out the Wi-Fi 6, the Wi-Fi 6E uh, evolutions and impacts to the wireless broadband industry. With 5G, uh, you know, 5G is also reaching a point of standardization. I've got a, a state of 5G report here uh, from Viavi Solutions, and I just want to highlight a few things that they found. Obviously, this is one report, but I think it encapsulates kind of where we're at with 5G. 5G networks are now available in 47 out of the world's 70 largest economies by GDP. Uh, currently, almost 2,500 cities globally have commercial 5G networks. This is across 92 countries. And the manufacturing sector 
is emerging as a leader in private 5G networks globally, about 44% of publicly announced deployments. So a plurality there. Um, give me some of your thoughts there on just at a high level, what are the latest updates to 5G technology that you find to be most impactful and um, you know, consequential to uh, shaping the industry, shaping potential use cases, and you know, feel free to comment on any of those stats too on just the growth of 5G. Yeah, I think we first of all have to differentiate between public 5G and private 5G. So public 5G was, uh, first of all, is here, is very broadly uh, available now, but when you get beyond your, your personal smartphone device, um, there's not a whole lot of stuff that connects to it yet. That's changing very quickly though. Um, I, you know, it came back, uh, wow, it's going on uh, seven weeks already from the, the biggest mobile show in the world, uh, MWC in Barcelona. And I was with um, the leadership of a, a large uh, tech company was saying in the last three months uh, before the show, they saw a 6x increase in the availability of 5G devices. Um, and uh, this is a household technology name telling me this. So, so um, I think the device ecosystem is very quickly catching up. Um, and then behind the device ecosystem, you need the use cases. But part of the challenge of 5G is because it uses spectrum that's a little bit higher in the bands than what we use just to have a conversation or text on our phone. You need a higher density of um, antennas when you deploy it and all which require backhaul. So it's a pretty heavy lift to get all that stuff up out there. And uh, you'll see it continuing like everything. Um, I and, and then, you know, when we talk about an industrial building or we talk about um, a warehouse, I, I like to call a warehouse a Faraday cage with storage, um, in that all these buildings are, are basically made of metal girders. And, and even with our homes, you know, um, co most coverage is outside, most consumption is inside of network usage. And so how do you do that? And that's the whole reason the private cellular space is taking, taking off so fast. Because even if you have deployed public 5G somewhere, um, a lot of that signal isn't getting through. In fact, there was a Verizon study also from uh, a little over a year ago that did studies that showed um, because windows have the emissivity coding for energy efficiency, the heat, you know, heat out and cold, you know, you know, air conditioning or whatever in, um, well, guess what? Radio waves are energy. And so you actually get better penetration indoors through a brick wall than you do through a modern energy efficient window. Um, so because of that, um, and because of metal construction of commercial buildings, you need your own network. And so the first phase was deploying Wi-Fi. Now we have site surveys of buildings that showed like 20, literally 20 Wi-Fi routers on one edge, trying to shoot up, down and sideways around warehouse racks or equipment. And you can only get coverage in half the warehouse. Um, and that's why you're seeing private, private 5G um, really being embraced by private networks for enterprise. And that's really where I think you're going to see a lot of the innovation in enterprise, assuming 5G in the short term. Um, because again, if I were to say from whatever operator you use in North America or Europe, what's that cool thing you can do with a public 5G network you couldn't do before? I'd be hard pressed to tell you, and I, I bet you you couldn't tell me either. But when you get to the enterprise space and now you're enabling super secure environment, um, really high control of all your data, um, coverage everywhere where you need it, the ability to hang other networks on your master cellular network that you control, um, it's a game changer for a lot of these companies. I think that's one of the most important distinctions and takeaways from this podcast episode is just that 
sort of forking, right, of public versus private 5G uh, technology developments, use cases, and how they will then further um, sort of bake in the common understanding of what 5G can do, but also how wireless broadband providers maneuver providing services around 5G. So I'm curious um, if you see that forking being, uh, you know, mm, a point where the wireless broadband industry also starts to kind of fork in terms of which players provide which services? Or uh, is this something that is um, basically just, let's expand the portfolio with, we'll provide the private, we'll provide the public, we'll provide the Wi-Fi, 6, 6E, 7, right? Uh, how is that uh, dynamic shaping the actual services and solutions that you see wireless broadband players um, provide? Oh, I see. It's, it's happening already. So basically, it, it's it's a difference in approach where traditional telcos sort of have their way of doing things just based on their history, like everybody. Um, but what we're talking about when you get to private 5G is an enterprise technology play. So it's all the enterprise technology providers are the ones driving the applications. Because again, enterprise applications really don't come from public network operators for the most part. Well, onesie, twosie maybe pop out, but for the most part, it's going to come from all the big tech names we, we know and love. And so these are the people that are looking at private 5G as a way to add a lot of value with new applications and services. Like take, take an example of, you know, everybody's sort of freaking out over uh, chat GPT and AI lately. Uh, but, the, but the freak out, like when you go to a trade show is watching all these robotic dogs and robotic this and robotic that walk around, right? And if you look at what's happening in manufacturing, what's happening in warehouses, they're all these autonomous robotic vehicles. Well, guess what? If you don't want them to run over people or run into each other, for just for collision avoidance alone, you need a private cellular network. It doesn't work on Wi-Fi. Latency is not low enough. Um, you don't have the coverage everywhere to do it on a Wi-Fi network. You have to go to a private cellular network. Um, so some of the most cutting edge uh, productivity, cost efficient type of things that everyone's adopting very quickly, um, require a very robust low latency network that has coverage everywhere. And, uh, you know, to highlight some of those other stats um, from my earlier State of 5G report, the, um, the manufacturing sector is clearly guiding, uh, I think, a lot of the innovative use cases uh, for 5G and will also act as a a bed, probably a, a foundation for how we see private 5G networks develop. Um, you know, for example, you know, just to pinpoint one country, uh, actually, it looks like recently, um, you know, uh, the U.S. has actually overtaken um, China, which was a leader in um, 5G and IoT deployments. But, you know, there's different assessments on that sort of uh, ranking. But to just look at China, for example, uh, the country said that... Um, from 2021 to 2025, it plans to establish over 10,000 5G-powered factories to help bolster the application of 5G technology in industrial internet. So, you know, we're seeing um, countries and private entities to deploy 5G in a heavy industry setting and at scale. Do you see the manufacturing sector as continuing to be the sector where we will uh, see the most innovative use cases and kind of the the most sort of a definitional ecosystem for how private 5G networks refine 
their solutions, their technologies, all that? Or do you see any other sectors kind of stepping up to the plate that the broadband industry should be keeping an eye on? So I think it's I think it's one important sector, but there are others. And just as a comment about China, one is we need to take any success that's coming out of China with a, a little skepticism. Uh, and two, everything in China is a very top-down approach. So the government decides, hey, guess what? Everybody's going to adopt this, and everybody has to adopt it. So it's not market forces driving it. It's uh, it, it's more the central planning uh, adopting it. But um, but manufacturing is uh, one of the leading categories. Um, and uh, we've seen that a lot, especially like in the U.S. here, we have, um, you know, a band called CBRS, 150 megahertz that anybody can use for LTE or 5G, which has really accelerated things. But, you know, I've been spending a lot of time dealing with international opportunities lately because some of, a lot of our customers now are saying, hey, we need you to follow us around the planet to all our sites. And uh, I mean, there are dozens of countries now around the world. They may not have exactly the same uh, methodology we have for using a shared piece of spectrum, but most of them have um, created some accommodation for people to do private networks. So typically you either go to the operator in country and you do a sub-license for a campus, um, or you can get your own uh, piece of it. And that's that's basically what we see happening in Europe right now, especially in Germany with a lot of the uh, uh, industrial guys uh, jumping into this very aggressively. Uh, but in terms of other segments, you know, um, the one I can't uh, overemphasize enough is really warehousing right now, uh, because, again, um, everything they do in a warehouse, uh, whether it's scanning stuff, uh, internal applications are running on tablets. Um, uh, a fun fact is we're now approaching 70 percent of all forklifts in the country have, are electric. And those big batteries um, have to be constantly monitored for usage or else they're going to die halfway during the day. Um, if you look at this, the roofs on warehouses, it's multiple football fields, um, which are becoming prime locations for solar. And you have to have good connectivity everywhere to manage all this stuff. Um, it keeps going on and on. So we're seeing um, a really incredible amount of activity from the whole warehouse logistics space. Um, the other one that is a real su pleasant surprise to me um, is really smart agriculture. Uh, you know, Ag has always been threatening to be very meaningful, especially in the IoT space. But you get into the problem of connectivity, and, and you get into a couple problems. One is there's not connectivity in a lot of farms, uh, even in the U.S., and when you get outside the U.S., um, very little. And even if you have that connectivity, though, some of the new farm equipment, like I think um, John Deere had a tractor at CES in January that had almost three dozen like 4K cameras on it, looking at every leaf as it drives. And it decides what to squirt, you know, what to fertilize, what to kill. Um, you know, you're seeing videos now, these like things that are lasering all the weeds as you go along. Uh, but these these things are becoming multi-million dollar mobile data platforms. And even if you had coverage where they were operating, there's so much data coming off of these things, it would bankrupt you to put it all in a public network. And so the idea that you can have a private network, take a look at all this data first, decide what's important, maybe do some kind of action to it on your own servers and then decide what goes to a public cloud. Um, that's a really powerful thing. So that's a really, really uh, busy one for us right now as well. Yeah, both those sectors are ones that we need to keep an eye on. And honestly, we could probably do a whole episode just on you know the uh, possibilities and innovative use cases for uh, 5G, 6G, 
in smart ag um so maybe we'll have to bring you back on for that right well, well dan i must mention you know i'm an hour west of philadelphia in amish country so um when people don't realize but you know the amish were one of the earliest adopters of mobile phones really well because they weren't allowed to have phones in their house for religious reasons because they were connected to a public electrical grid but um they had an exception for mobile phones because they could charge them from a generator uh, when they needed to and, and so for somehow it got around the rules and so the amish believe it or not one of the earliest adopters of mobile phones wow yeah. that is that is going to win me a trivia game that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> um so you mentioned something in your last answer about um sort of the, the international expansion, right? That some of your clients are now saying, hey, can you follow us um, across the globe, help us provide solutions that address uh, international scale and maneuver you know, international regulations, all that good stuff. How is that international proliferation and standardization of, you know, we'll hone in on, on 5G specifically. How is that impacting wireless broadband providers today? And do you have any advice strategy for that uh, sort of international approach? Are they prepared for maintaining this broad access to 5G, right? That That is becoming more of a standard in um, leading economies. Give us your thoughts there. Oh boy, that's another big question. You know, um, every country has its own uh, licensing scheme for allocating spectrum for 5G. And then separate from that, they have an approach to licensing for private networks. Uh, more and more. Some of it's just a simple paper filing. Some of it is more active, like we have uh, in terms of a priority of use for some of the spectrum in the U.S. Um, so the trick is to really understand the specifics of the, the specific geographic location you're going in um, and make sure that um, what it really comes down to is the equipment. So um, one of the reasons, like you saw manufacturing go early, because manufacturing companies tend to be really big. And so like the Ericsson's and the Nokia's could take the same gear they used for telcos and they could use it for the top 200 biggest manufacturing companies. Once you get beyond that, though, the economics don't work because that's like the most premium, expensive Cadillac overkill gear for most companies. And you have a completely different ecosystem of network gear and software um, that is really tailor made to an enterprise. And so the trick is when you're deploying this stuff is um, it's one thing to deploy it, but then it's who's providing tier one, tier two support. Um, you know, what's going to happen in the future? Because frankly, most people start um, deploying LTE because there's many more things you can connect immediately. And then as you add 5G um, as you go, how does it all sort of fit together from a spectrum standpoint, from an equipment standpoint? So these are all things you really need to consider to make sure you're not running down a dead end street on this stuff. Um, but again, it's it's I think the trick is thinking about it like an enterprise technology deployment. Uh, and I think probably the biggest mistake the industry could make is to treat uh, enterprise customers as though you're trying to make them baby telcos. All right, Alan, we're just uh, scratching the surface here. We have more to break down 
on our conversation um, surrounding the wireless revolution, but that's all the time we have for this part of the conversation. So what we're going to do is we're going to cap it here and we're going to be back with a part two that continues to explore uh, some of these um, technology ecosystems at play in an IoT context. And we'll also learn a little bit more about GXC's cellular mesh solutions and how they compare where they fit into this uh, wireless revolution ecosystem. But till then, we'll go ahead and call it here with part one of our conversation. Alan Proithis, CEO of cellular mesh solutions company GXC. Thank you so much for your time on Wavelengths today. Uh, if folks want to look into GXC a little bit more before uh, part two, how can they learn more? Uh, really easy, Daniel. Just go to gxc.io. That's gxc.io. and You'll find uh, more about private cellular and, uh, and mesh that you've ever dreamed of. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right, Alan. Thank you so much for your time. We'll have you back on very soon for part two. Till then, I really appreciate your time. And thank you, everyone, for tuning into part one of this two-part conversation with our guest, Alan Proithis, here on Wavelengths, an Amphenol Broadband Solutions podcast. Make sure you're heading to GXE's website to catch up a little bit more on their solutions before part two. And head to our website, amphenolbroadband.com, for previous episodes of the podcast, more info on our solutions and services. And don't forget to subscribe to Wavelengths on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so you don't miss part two. We'll be back very soon. Till then, I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. We'll catch you on the next one.